Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 16th of March. Joining me today to discuss banks, the budget and big pharma are Julian Hoffman, all the way from Devon. Welcome, Julian. Morning, Dan. Alex Newman. Hi, Dan. Mark Robinson. All the way from Surrey. Indeed. Not, I mean, you're not here, Mark. So. <laughs> you, are oh, no, you are in Surrey. Yes, sorry. Uh, Hermione Taylor as well. Hello, thanks for having me. And Jennifer Johnson will be joining us later on. But uh, we're going to start in the obvious place. It was on this day in 2008 that Bear Stearns was sold to J.P. Morgan for a rock-bottom price. Fast forward 15 years and we have the apparent makings of another banking crisis precipitated by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank last Friday. Uh, I have to confess, when we discussed this in Friday's morning meeting before the collapse, I said when asked that it struck me as a bit of a storm in a teacup. On one level, I do semi-stand by that, but there's no denying that fear has spread far and wide since. We'll, we'll come to Europe and the UK in a minute, but let's start with SVB itself and US banks. Julian, uh, why don't we start with you? Your sort of potted summary of what happened and why those concerns have spread in, in the US in particular. Okay, yes. So, um, <clears throat> SVB, obviously, as everyone probably knows by now, is uh, stands for Silicon Valley Bank. It was a sort of small regional lender in uh, in California that lent or had customers exclusively in the tech kind of venture capital trust type space. Um, what happened was that uh, its deposit pay suddenly crumbled over fears of liquidity crises and things like that. Um, and it appears that their prudential management wasn't particularly good, so they didn't um, match their borrowing with their, uh, their deposit pace particularly well. Um, but they also had an issue around uh, interest rates in the US, which have risen quite steeply in comparison to um, other markets. And uh, it appears that they had to sell uh, far more of their liquid capital um, in order to meet redemptions, uh, because the uh, the rising value of interest rates has also affected the value of uh, liquid instruments like government bonds. So, in effect, uh, <clears throat> you're having to sell, um, you know, 100 percent, 110 percent to meet 100 percent. So, yeah, the two don't add up. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, it, it is one of those strange sort of sudden liquidity crisis that actually happens quite a lot in the US. I think that's what you know, people don't quite appreciate that there's been more than 500 bank failures in America since 2011. So this is one of the latest. Yeah, uh, this is, as you say, it, it was a, a small lender at one point, And part of the problem was that the growth of those deposits from, uh, you know, the, the VC community that it served was pretty extreme. It put those deposits into what, you know, ostensibly a relatively safe assets, treasuries, that kind of thing, but didn't factor in, A, the rapid rise in interest rates, and B, the fact that its deposit base made up of businesses, uh, disproportionately large number of businesses compared with most banks, was, as it proved, pretty flighty. I think it was $42 billion was attempted to be taken out on one day last week, which is, you know, pretty unheard of even in the scale of bank runs. Uh, you know, a bit of a herd mentality, perhaps in in that deposit base. Bit of a, a trial by social media, almost, because once those rumours start, and I think there were talks of WhatsApp groups as well for these uh, these depositors who you know all moved on mass. Um, it's also been it is a fact of one day that compared to two thousand and eight, where internet banking had only just been two or three years in the making, uh, when people still had to stand outside the branches, you know, in, and wait patiently for their money if they wanted to panic. Uh, whereas these days you can just click on a 
uh, a banking app and withdraw all of the savings almost immediately. Uh, and the combination of the two is what is what's precipitated this liquidity crisis, particularly at SVB. But uh, as you say, uh, you know the concerns have spread in other areas, and it's probably what we'll we'll have to go into greater depth, I, I imagine. But um, yeah. So uh, so on that, Alex, maybe we bring you in just on. On the, on the US in general, because although SVB was very idiosyncratic in terms of that depositor base, other banks have also, you know, uh, um, a large amount of uh, assets in bonds, uh, long dated bonds that they won't necessarily be able to liquidate straight away. Not that they necessarily will need to, but that's where the concern is perhaps, uh, well, that's certainly where the concern has come from and maybe why this issue is lingering on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I suppose much of the commentary has centered on how SVB's particular deposit base, this sort of very plugged-in technology ecosystem, were a particular risk because they, you know, they either organised very quickly to pull their cash out. Um, uh, but, I mean, and I think there's a grain of truth to that, but it's also, it's not hard to see, as Julian pointed out, how in the age of smartphones and Twitter, that flight deposit flight risk, it really is a major issue for um, particularly smaller banks because the... The, the risk of uh, the, these kind of spiral dynamics are greater uh, when you're you're a, you're a smaller institution. So, you know, we, we saw this even in the UK. We saw this a few years ago with Metro Bank when when you know there's some prudential concerns following some very poor risk management of their their capital their, their risk assets. It created this kind of vacuum in which rumours about the security of some of their deposits um, uh, just you know sort of ballooned. And you know, luckily then we didn't have a bank run but there were definitely a few days you know a few days with metro bank where there was you know there was definitely some concerns that that was that was a possibility and you saw some large um large corporates pulling their um their uh their deposits from the bank um i suppose the other issue uh the other issue that svb has highlighted is that banks of a certain size below below you know sort of 250 billion in in um assets i think is around that level um have been uh uh well i mean svb in their particular case they apparently you know lobbied for to be excluded from the regulation that affects globally systemic systemically important banks or um or larger u.s banks which meant that they would have had to take in slightly more proactive risk management approach in the event um they've gone without a, a risk manager for you know sounds like the most of the past year um so there's because there's a lot of fear in the air lots of other regional u.s banks have um have kind of been caught up in this and there's been some very heavy selling as 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 investors basically have have taken the decision to 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 kind of liquidate their their um their holdings of these banks because the possibility that something might be discovered in in the way they've managed risk um could be discovered that 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 might be discovered is too great a risk for them to take on so yeah i mean you see these you see these events sometimes in in uh in finance in the financial sector where really the you know uh fear and sentiment really overtakes fundamentals some of these some of these banks are potentially sound but if enough money gets pulled from them then suddenly they won't be well, it's also interesting about SVB, um, and this is what probably applies to the rest of that, what we'd call the secondary banking market, is that on paper, they um, crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. So uh, they have 50% risk-weighted assets, which is pretty much what the largest institutions have. They were only leveraged about 12 times their assets, um, uh, 12 times their equity. 
which is you know not even you know that's 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 the baseline that's not even something to be remarked on and and yet they find themselves in this situation so that's what has led to people being spooked by it because you know, if you think that if they if, if that's the baseline and they're still going going under then um you know it could happen the same in the same way to other people i think there's a i think there's a more basic point as well and it's linked in with the rapidity of the interest rate increases there was as dan alluded to before the the deposit base of svb had grown enormously in a relatively short space of time because of uh the rollout of spacs and uh ipos through uh 20 2021 so suddenly they had this vast sort of uh this vast deposit base that they didn't have before a lot of companies the tech companies use the bank for their day-to-day operations as well but it must have come to a a point where they've got all this capital parked in sort of uh uh in in their deposits within the bank itself that aren't earning any money meanwhile inflation's trundling up eight ten percent uh, interest rates, uh, the, the Fed reacts, interest rates start to go up rapidly. And then they're going to be looking around saying, what, what is the point of having this capital parked in the bank itself when we could be uh, obtaining you know, a greater returns elsewhere? So that, in part, that played a, played a part also. And, of course, you had the, the situation where then SVB have, have got all these uh, U.S. bonds uh, in their treasury there the the value of these things are falling they've got this cash call basically they have to sell this and it becomes sort of an unvirtuous circle there is also a, a those you say you know svb julian svb didn't uh, do anything wrong by the the letter of the well certainly not by the letter of the law but also in terms of you know uh, ratio analysis that kind of thing but they are the U.S. does have a, if not a carve-out, then it elected not to apply Basel III rules to banks under a certain size, of which SVB was one of them. And to some extent, those rules would have helped, I think. They wouldn't have helped once deposits start flying, as Alex said, because, you know, it's difficult to uh, stop anything happening then. But but they would have helped in terms of the way it uh, valued its, its assets, perhaps. But, but on the subject of uh, regulation, we should turn to Europe because in the past couple of days, the attention has really focused there on Credit Suisse in particular. Uh, Overnight, the uh, um, Swiss National Bank has come out with some statements of support and some uh, liquidity support, which has, at the time of speaking, seemed to stabilise things. But I suppose, Alex, this is another sign of of the contagion and the fear, because again, Credit Suisse, in terms of its balance sheet, all right, is going through this big restructuring. It probably certainly didn't help this week when it said, you know, it had some material errors in the uh, the accounts, but but in terms of the uh, the balance sheet itself, it seems okay for now. But the concern is that you know, if you get deposited flight, if you get too much worry, that that could all go into reverse. Yeah, I mean, uh, liquidity ratios at um, Credit Suisse are uh, sound. They've said. So you would, in in theory, think then they're able to meet redemptions as they come, and money has been withdrawn from the bank over the over the last few months. Um, at the same time, they have taken what looks like a much more prudent risk management policy in in their hedging of their exposure to interest rates. Um, but to the fear point, it's not wholly surprising that Credit Suisse became the next fo- focus point 
um, of of the you know kind of the banking sell off this week because it has been the most error strewn scandal um, heavy uh, bank in Europe. So when people are worried about what's um, what's hidden beneath the uh, beneath the balance sheets or, um, or or liquidity management of big banks, Credit Suisse is you know front and centre of the concerns. Um, and then, you know, very unfortunately, yesterday we had some some pretty poorly worded comments from their largest investor. Or, you know, it may have been taken out of context. Or, yeah, so it said it absolutely would not give more cash to the bank, which sparked this thirty percent sell off on, on Wednesday. Um, I think, and there was a there's a reason why um, you know the largest investor is not going to give any more because they would it would push them above a certain position. Um, but the market read that as a sign that they are sort of abandoning an investment they only made last year. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, fear, fear is in the air, and then it spreads really to the weakest uh, links in in the in the chain. Um, I mean, we, we can sort of talk about this is a funny funny week um, in which we picked um, the idea of a European. Um, Europe, the European banking system. Yeah, thank you. That was my tip idea. Thank you. Well, I think come on, we, we can share. We can share the. <clears throat> I was thinking about going on holiday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the uh, eurozone. I should eurozone, say. So it doesn't sorry, actually yeah. uh, include Swiss banks, but the the ETF um, mentioned in the ideas section this week. Uh, I mean, that, that is the the question, really. I suppose people would want to know the answer to, which is impossible to answer. Am I going to put it out there anyway? You know, given how this contagion has spread and how this fear has spread is there potentially for, you know, um, a bold investor, you know, an opportunity, certainly maybe in Europe, as we say, or maybe in the UK as well, where banks have sold off, you know, on this fear, not necessarily on, you know, structural concerns. If I come in on that, I mean, I think there definitely is because it it all comes down to where the next thing will be where the people will be looking at the lending book to see where the major loans have gone. And, uh, what surprised me in the context of the, the US banks is that people like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs haven't been hit as hard. Partly it's because they have the, the capital rules that we were talking about earlier, but um, they're also very big lenders to, to tech to tech companies. So, um, you know, they're the, combined, they're the biggest lender to SoftBank, for example, which is no one's idea of a, um, you know, a brilliant uh, setup. Um, so I think that the value in what we're talking about is going to come down to which uh, institutions in the UK and Europe don't have that kind of exposure but are being marked down nonetheless um and so for for example the you know the UK banks that we that we tend to favor which is you know people like NatWest or or even Lloyds uh, <clears throat> they don't have this this venture capital angle at all um in their case, it's all about UK property, which, I mean, that's a whole different story. It's off. I mean, that's a whole different set of risks. But it's not the risk that we that everyone is talking about. So I think there is definitely an investment angle there to say, well, <laughs> OK, there's a systemic problem related to one type of industry, um, you know, that's been funded by institutions that don't have these sets of rules. It's kind of a real world stress test for the banks as well, which will be quite interesting. But lessons will be... Uh derived from that down the track i imagine i was going to say i mean there is what there is one thing that investors should we have talked about this a few times on the podcast when we've talked about banking the last year is that how is how the kind of the deposit story plays out for even the largest banks they've kind of 
that they've been able to benefit from a degree of inertia um, of uh, lots of their, their their depositors that they aren't seeking to to lock in four percent over the next few years. They are happy to just park their their money in, in effectively a zero percent uh, checking account. Um, and yeah, managing that risk is a re- you know is a tr- is a, a tricky thing, particularly if rates do move high, uh, higher or if they are sustained and and customers um, realise that actually they can they can make their cash go a bit further elsewhere. So you know that is definitely something that investors thinking of the of the you know the the, the opportunity here for for these slightly more sound UK or U- European banks. Um, need to consider you know over the next kind of couple of years and related to that is the the net interest income question of course in the uk in the past few weeks we have seen you know banks disappointing in terms of their predictions for this year and on net interest income partly in the expectation that the rate cycle may be you know at an end uh partly because there might be more pressure on them to pass on some uh, uh, uh good rates to depositors i suppose that story may now be playing out in the US, perhaps even Europe, we've got the ECB meeting after we record, in terms of, you know, what the other big impact of the banking situation in the past week is that the pricing of rate hikes for this year is completely removed and now we're pricing in rate cuts. I mean, we'll see whether let's, that... Let's see if inflation disappears. Well, exactly. We'll see if that's sustained. But but that's another, you know, that is a, a material change for the banks in terms of their prospects if net interest income is not going to be as high as people think. But we should uh, we should move on uh, because there has been another uh, big event this week, of course, in the UK, which is the budget. Uh, and as usual, there was an array of policies announced by Jeremy Hunt yesterday. Uh, a lot of them focused on the labour market and trying to get people to either go back to work or perhaps work for a bit longer, which we'll come on to in a minute. But I want to start just on uh, the capital expensing relief, which... Uh, is a bit of a well. It's an attempt to offset the corporate tax, corporation tax rise, which is still coming in. And I wonder, uh, maybe Mark, if you had some thoughts on capital expensing, effectively the ability of companies to offset their capital expenditure costs in full against uh, profits for the next three years. For the next three years, that's part of the the problem, isn't mm, it? Because mm. people have been calling for this as a as a fundamental change. Because the UK has um, the UK economy has come under um, under criticism in the last few years because of low productivity rates. Part of this is to do with uh, relatively low rates of internal uh, investment, uh, and and from um, left wing sources as well. Uh, the market is often the public market is often criticised because there is too great an onus on uh, returning funds to shareholders. Uh, and that probably uh, that probably bears bears looking at uh, on a wider basis as well because I think um, a business investment uh, in the UK it accounted for about ten uh, percent uh, of GDP, which is lower than the uh, well below the the average for the OECD, which I think is around about twelve and a half percent, something like that. So th- there is a problem there. But this just seems to me, as you alluded to before, to be pretty much window dressing when you take it in tandem with with the increase um, in business rates too. So I'm not quite sure if it's going to have that much of an effect. I mean, presumably there might be some 
industries in the UK that will bring back, bring forward uh, uh, planned investment in certain areas. But uh, unless it becomes a, a permanent feature, I can't, I can't really imagine it's going to have that much benefit. Because I mean, a lot of the, depending on which industry you're looking at, uh, the capital investment tends to be forward loaded and, and long dated as well. So are you going to really make these decisions based on a three-year window? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I should also say this is to also to replace the super deduction uh, relief, which is also going. But uh, bring in Hamani, who's been waiting uh, patiently. Uh, on that point about the the uh, companies bringing forward rather than increasing capital investment, perhaps, and the OBR did have something to say about this. I've been enjoying all 168 pages of the OBR's latest report, um, and they quite crucially... Um, say that um, they expect that this new measure is going to bring investment forward, but it isn't going to lead to any permanent changes. I think that this is actually really interesting because Hunt was very clear to say yesterday in the budget that he wants to make the measure permanent when fiscal conditions allow. Um, and he's bound by these fiscal rules that he's brought in that say that national debt and borrowing must be falling over this five-year rolling period. By being bound by these fiscal rules, it looks like he's actually going to limit the effectiveness of this new policy um, by making sure that investment comes forward, but not actually introducing anything more permanent. Um, so I think we've got to a really interesting point here where it looks like maybe the tail of these fiscal rules is actually wagging the dog of policy and maybe stopping some kind of quite sensible policy being implemented on a more permanent basis. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. Uh we're, we will obviously be looking at uh, expensing and its impacts in more detail uh, in the weeks and months ahead, but we, we should uh, skip on to the other uh, big aspect of the budget, certainly from a personal finance point of view, which is the changes to pensions, taxation, and uh, in particular, the removal of the lifetime allowance. That was the, the rabbit out of the hat, if you will. It had been anticipated to rise from a little over $1 million to $1.8 million but Hunt got rid of it entirely this is um now the LTA does have a big impact on how people assess the amount of pension they will have and the, the tax they're going to have to pay that is now removed uh there have been some changes to the annual allowance as well and the money purchase annual allowance getting a bit more technical both have been increased so there's flexibility there to add more on an annual level but in short the amount you can contribute over your lifetime is currently uh now unlimited the reason for this, Hermione, also uh, the government says, is to try and encourage people back to work. I mean, will will that work? Will this boost the labour force? This has been a big issue for the NHS in particular. Yes. So we do have an inactivity problem in the UK. We've got very high levels of inactive workers. So that's workers who aren't working and they're not looking for work either. Um, but whether this will work, I think it's looking very uncertain. So we've got quite mixed data on how much early retirement is driving this increase in inactivity. Um, some ONS data says that early retirement's had a big impact, so this pension reform could help, but other data suggesting it might be because of long-term sickness or disability. Um, in any case, we've got some research through suggesting that this is really only going to make a big difference to some very high earners. So in terms of overall participation rates, it might not have a huge impact. But the exception, as you said, is the NHS. And we actually had Hunt talking about senior NHS workers when he introduced this policy in the budget yesterday. So we might see that it has quite a big impact with NHS participation rates and people working for longer, but maybe not for the labour market overall. 
But then I have seen this policy kind of compared to using a sledgehammer to crack a nut. So if you're trying to increase NHS participation, changing this tax repension allowance wholesale is quite a drastic way of doing that. From my point of view as well, they've actually, in scrapping it entirely, they've called a lot of attention to this policy and Labour have already come out this morning and said they would scrap it, which, you know, is potentially significant given uh, opinion polls definitively suggest at the moment they will be in power probably some point next year. So again, from a pension planning point of view, you know, this is supposed to provide people with the uh, uh, ability to recognise that they will be able to save an unlimited amount. But if you're thinking of that, you think, well, this is just going to get reversed in a year and I will have to pay tax again on my pension above a certain level, then that's not really going to change that too much. Uh, I think there's also some issues over IHT, in terms of, you know, if you're in a, a DC pension, again, this is a very small number of people, but you, you will effectively then be able to save £60,000 a year up to an unlimited amount and then pass that on without paying IHT to your descendants. They will then be taxed at their marginal rate. But I think, you know, they've, the government has perhaps made this a bit of a political football, so we can probably expect more changes to come on this. We shall see. Anyway, time is rapidly marching on. So we're going to discuss our cover story this week, which is on pharmaceuticals and the pricing of their drugs. Uh, Jennifer Johnson is here with us. Uh, can we start by sort of talking about the, the backdrop to this piece, what you were looking at in writing it, what the kind of the issues are in terms of drug pricing and in particular the pricing of more innovative medicines and, and uh, medicines targeting small groups of people, which necessarily then perhaps are, are costing more uh, and the question really is are people going to be able to pay for these for these drugs in future however innovative however groundbreaking they may be yeah so we're reaching kind of a very interesting point uh scientifically with things like cell and gene therapies which are these medicines that can treat what are known as orphan diseases. So orphan drugs are treatments for rare diseases and they're increasingly becoming uh, kind of key to pharmaceutical companies' revenues. Evaluate Pharma, which is a commercial data provider, says orphan drug sales are going to grow almost 12% between 2023 and 2028. This is significantly faster than the 7% which is expected for non-orphan drugs. You might ask, if these drugs are for rare diseases, how are they going to make uh, significant sums of money? These drugs do tend to command much higher prices. That's really the key, in part because they're innovative. Uh, and some of the more novel therapies, cell and gene therapies, are usually very effective. So in some cases, it can and has been argued that curing someone with a chronic genetic illness, say sickle cell disease, with a drug that may cost you know, $2 million, is more effective in the long run than treating that person over the course of many years. So we're really reaching this inflection point where we now have the technologies and the ability to effectively cure certain diseases that, uh, you know, we we never had uh, effective treatments for um, until the kind of past couple of decades. But it's the question of how are pharmaceutical companies going to recoup their R&D costs? How are individuals and healthcare systems going to uh, bear the, the costs of these drugs? So it's a very, very much a live issue and, and kind of a tug of war situation. Yeah, because the backdrop to these uh, breakthroughs is more pressure on pricing in a number of different uh 
locales, if you will, the, the U.S., uh, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act, which we seem to mention every week at the moment, but but that also uh, is going to put some pressure on blockbuster drug prices in future, which could then have a bit of a ripple effect. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the thing that we've kind of seen in the news most recently with this is um, insulin, obviously, has become a poster child for the excesses of pharma pricing because it's a relatively old drug. Uh, and manufacturers have found a few regulatory loopholes to uphold their patents uh, and thereby sort of their high prices. Uh, notably, recently, both Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk have agreed to cut insulin prices in the US uh, which is fairly significant. Whether this is going to happen anytime soon for really, really high-priced orphan drugs sort of remains to be seen. But there's clearly kind of a, a cultural moment uh, where patients uh, and healthcare systems are asking pharmaceutical companies, you know, how much, what kind of profit margins do you really need on these kind of things? So it's, uh, yeah, it's a conversation that's increasingly going to happen, I think, as orphan drugs become a larger and larger constituent of pharmaceutical revenues. It does kind of remind me to some extent of we had a similar thing a decade ago when when orphan drugs were just taking off again, you know, post-financial crisis where governments were quite stretched. And I think, for example, AstraZeneca, you know, as with uh, most pharma companies back then, saw a bit of a sales dip beyond the, you know, Western governments were running out of cash to a certain extent, asking companies to cut prices, buying more generic drugs. So, Potentially, the, the same kind of thing could happen again. That said, you know, AstraZeneca in particular does have a very strong pipeline at the moment. Uh, we have seen in the UK as well, as we touched on this in a previous podcast, you know, some of these issues coming out in terms of the NHS uh, rebate scheme, uh, which excludes innovative drugs. But the, the very fact that those costs are excluded from this kind of price ceiling, if you will, is is effectively pushing up the overall cost of the scheme and causing pharma companies quite a lot of angst. Yeah, and so the argument from the NHS is that the increase in the health services clawback rate, which uh, is designed to limit the growth of the NHS budget for branded medicines, uh, reflects the faster adoption of new, higher-priced medicines by the health service. So while we may not be talking about, you know, $2 million gene therapies, there are higher-cost innovative medicines that are now covered under this. So this year, uh, drug makers will be paying 26.5% of their sales back to the UK government, uh, and which uh, a couple of drug companies have sort of said we, we uh, are pulling out of this scheme. Uh, they will now be subject to a more stringent statutory scheme. So it's, uh, you know, it's clearly kind of a... They're doing... They're protesting um, this clawback mechanism and and yeah and it's arguing that's going to hurt them um, and hurt their revenues but this kind of again shows that drug companies patients and health authorities are going to have to reach some kind of agreement around innovative medicines there are no easy answers pharma companies do need to recoup these r&d costs and ultimately make a profit uh, but the question then is what good is creating life-changing innovative drugs if no one can afford to access them some of these uh Issues are slow burning, things like the Inflation Reduction Act that won't apply if it does limit the prices until 2026 at the earliest. So I suppose the question is, in the short to medium term for pharmaceuticals, you know, are they still expecting their profit margins to remain relatively stable? You know, they, again, it seems that as long as the companies still have a good and varied pipeline, if you're a big 
farmer this is with a, you know a large amount of uh, products available you should be able to to ride this out to an extent but it's certainly something that is happening at the margin now and may may get bigger in future years yeah and i think it will become bigger. A lot of the really innovative therapies are produced by smaller biotechs. But once some of these things come to market, I'm thinking particularly um, the sort of major uh, next step in gene therapy is going to be uh, a treatment called Exocell, which is based on uh, the CRISPR gene editing uh, method. And that's sort of going to be the first. It looks like it's going to be the, the first treatment to get commercial approval. And again, it's likely to be very expensive, um, multi-million treatment for uh, sickle cell disease. Um, but I think once we start to see more of these treatments coming to market and potentially big pharma companies seeing um, the appeal of, of perhaps buying out some of these biotechs uh, or at least buying some of their assets, uh, this will come to the fore more broadly um and it sort of depends on an individual company's exposure to orphan drugs you did mention astrazeneca which does have a, a number of orphan drugs in its portfolio uh, which are cancer treatments uh, but it's able to get these orphan drugs approved in multiple indications so the number of patients actually being treated with a given um orphan drug is is quite high so astrazeneca's got a, a pretty kind of robust um way of of operating but it's once you start to see these gene therapies these highly highly innovative um and at the moment somewhat speculative gene gene therapies reaching the market that this will uh, probably kind of uh, take off jen thank you very much unfortunately that does bring us to the end of the show we have run out of time but thank you thank you to our other contributors this week hermione mark alex and julian and thank you to you for listening we'll see you next time on another companies and markets show hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands and the best part they're all about safe ethical and responsible manufacturing Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.